You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I'm not a religious person, not a praying person. So my mom, when she wanted me to pray for her, my mom would say, keep me in your thoughts, which I always did whenever she asked me to, and I still do now that she can't. To my Asian friends, listeners, and coworkers, I want you to know that you have been very much in my thoughts over the last week. I also want to say to my friends and listeners who do sex work, you've been in my thoughts too. When sex workers are attacked, when sex workers are harassed, stalked, assaulted, murdered, people don't speak up on behalf of sex workers or the work they do. Or worse, people will blame the sex worker because if they hadn't been doing sex work in the first place, which some people do by choice and others do because they lack other choices, if they hadn't been doing sex work, they wouldn't have been harassed, stalked, murdered. The massacre in Atlanta, the mass shooting at three massage parlors, the murders of six Asian women and a white woman and a white man, it wasn't just a racially motivated crime. The shooter the son of a youth pastor, a self-hating quote-unquote sex addict who had been through a residential sex addict rehab program at an evangelical church, which should be illegal. This was someone who hated himself for having sexual desires and hated the people who helped him act on them, realize them. People he would have been able to appreciate, desires he would have been able to appreciate if his faith or his parents or our culture had taught him to accept his sexuality and his desires and to if not love, at least appreciate the people who are sexual with him. The conversation over the last week has centered on anti-Asian hate crimes, and there has been a series of attacks against Asian Americans over the last years, a a rise in hate crimes targeting Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, just as the shooting at the Walmart in El Paso that took the lives of 23 Hispanics and Latinos in 2019 didn't come out of nowhere The increased attacks against Asians and Asian Americans we've seen over the last year didn't come out of nowhere either. The rabid rhetoric from the right and the bully who used to occupy the bully pulpit. That asshole, those assholes helped make El Paso happen. Talk about migrant caravans and gangs and they helped make hate crimes against Asians and Asian Americans happen. This is where a year of China virus and Kung flu got us. But I do want to say something really specifically to my friends who are sex workers. And this is going to sound a little nuts, but I see a ray of light here. In 1998, when Matthew Shepard was murdered, he was a college student who was murdered by two men, beaten and left tied to a fence in rural Wyoming, died in a hospital a couple of days later. It was horrible. The crime was horrible. And people took it as evidence that things were as bad now as they had ever been for gay people. The culture, the society was just as violently homophobic as it had ever been. And in the end, in the way that the Matthew Shepard story played out, there was actually a a small sign of the progress that we had made and would continue to make politically, culturally. The men who murdered Matthew Shepard, if they had said, if it had been 20 years earlier, if it had been 1978, even 1988, 1991, if they had said he made a pass at us, they wouldn't have been indicted. They wouldn't have been convicted if they had been indicted and prosecuted. It's called the gay panic defense. 
That gay guy made a pass at me, and so I killed him. People would make the gay panic defense and get away with murdering gay men regularly. And in 1998, when these two men murdered Matthew Shepard, the state of Wyoming, which is not known to be a particularly gay-friendly place now or then, prosecuted the men who murdered him as if he'd murdered a nun. They brought them up on capital charges. They're in prison for life. 20 years earlier, they probably would have walked. And to me, that was a sign of progress. There will always be hate and haters and violence. How does a society respond in the face of that hate and violence when it manifests? That's the test. And as horrible as Matthew Shepard's murder was, there was that ray of light. There was that small sign of progress. I see a small sign of progress here for sex workers in the response. 20 years ago, if this same thing had happened, 20 years ago, if a man had gone into three massage parlors and shot the women who worked there and killed them, the President of the United States, the Vice President of the United States wouldn't have flown to the city where that crime took place and spoken out. Neither Biden nor Harris acknowledged that this was a hate crime targeting sex workers too, and that was disappointing. But 20 years ago, the fact that most of the victims were sex workers and that the businesses attacked were known to provide sexual services, that would have been enough by itself. The whorephobia would have been enough by itself to keep the president and vice president away and to keep their mouths shut. So again, to my Asian friends, listeners, coworkers, you are in my thoughts. And also to my friends and listeners who do sex work, some of whom are Asian, you're in my thoughts too. And you are not being erased, not here, not being erased from the narrative, from the story, from what happened. Sex work is work. Sex workers are human beings whose lives matter, not just because they're human beings, but also because of the work that they do, which is valuable and should be acknowledged and should be acknowledged by the president of the United fucking States. And one day will be. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, I speak with Dr. Ian Fields, who leads an OBGYN residency program about being a male doctor in female medicine. And on the magnum Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as much show, more guests, no ads. I speak with Erica Moen and Matt Nolan, creators of Oh Joy Sex Toy, about their new book about sexuality and gender and porn and everything else for teenagers. All that coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan, this is a sex success story. Yesterday uh, at uh, one in the afternoon here uh, on Sunday in Australia, we were part of your Saturday night Seattle <laughs> live show online. It was super fun. We really, really enjoyed it. It's a great show and uh, a, a bit titillating. And uh, after the show got done, we went over to uh, Ojoy Sex Toy because they're a, a fantastic site and beautiful images and education and other kinds of things. We read a few of the dirty cartoons, including uh, How to Deep Throat. Very fun. And then uh, we tried stuff out that we learned right there on the couch. It was super fun. So thanks for your great show and for Ojoy Sex Toy. Thank you for calling in and sharing your success story. I'm glad that the live show, the Savage Love live stream, inspired you to get onto Oh Joy Sex Toy. And then Oh Joy Sex Toy inspired you 
and your partner to get creative and have some fun in the middle of the night in Australia. What else is there to do in the middle of the night in Australia but have some fun? And you're going to be extra delighted to learn that today's guests on this week's show, Erica Moen and Matthew Nolan from Oh Joy Sex Toy, they're in the Magnum here to talk about their new book. We like to start each week's show with a success story before we get to everyone's problems. If you want to share yours, give us a call, 206-302-2064. Share your success story, and we might start next week's show with yours. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old straight woman from the Midwest. I was recently dating this guy for about six months, um, but we decided to end things a few weeks ago. It wasn't a bad like breakup or anything. We just wanted different things. So... A few months back, I got my carpets cleaned and I cleared out my room and obviously I had to put my sex toys somewhere. But when I moved everything back, for some reason, I just couldn't find my favorite vibrator anywhere. And one night when this guy was over, I remarked that I couldn't find it anywhere. And he like lightly kind of jokes that he took it. And I'm just like, he's, that's kind of the person kind of like, that's kind of the person that he is. He like jokes about things that aren't necessarily funny, but I didn't take him seriously and I just kind of ignored it or whatever. And I was just like, I must've hit it for myself really well. So fast forward a few weeks, I still can't find it. I'm really starting to tear up my room looking for it. And he's over again one night when I'm really looking for it, really wanting to find it. And he's like, um, yeah, uh, you can't find it because I, I took it. And I'm like, are you like fucking with me? Or are you serious? Like, did you actually take my vibrator? Like, do you want me to be sexually frustrated or something? And he says yes. But he's like laughing when he says it. And I still can't tell if he's serious or not. So back to the breakup. I get home from his place and I didn't unpack my things for a while. And one day I'm looking for something and I go in the backpack that I took to his place and I find my fucking vibrator at the bottom of my bag. And I'm just, I have multiple questions. Why would someone do this? Why would he steal my personal property and lie about it? Why would he give it back? Why would he gaslight me? watch me tear my room up looking for it knowing that he has it like it's it makes me sick almost to think that like he had my vibrator he knew where it was and he watched me suffer like i just i don't get it and i'm wondering should i say something to this guy we haven't spoken since we broke up i would prefer to keep it that way but also a part of me really just wants to be like what the fuck with apologies to Maya Angelou, when someone tells you they stole your vibrator, believe them the first time. As to why he would steal your vibrator, uh, the obvious answer is almost always the correct answer. And it's kind of a cliche that there are a lot of guys out there, particularly a lot of straight guys out there, who are threatened by their girlfriends or wives having sex toys that can do things that their dicks cannot do, like vibrate or oscillate or actually be 10 to 12 inches long and as big around as a Coke can or whatever. So I think he took your vibrator and hid the vibrator for the duration of your relationship, basically because he didn't want to be competing with your vibrator sexually while you two were together, while you were being sexually intimate. And I guess it was kind of nice of him to return the vibrator when the relationship ended amicably. When the relationship ended, he returned the vibrator, put it in your backpack because now it didn't matter to him 
whether his dick was having to compete with your favorite vibrator. Guys, guys, addressing guys out there like your ex-boyfriend, a vibrator is a tool. It's a hammer. It's something that you can use to build a house, to create pleasure for someone. It's not in competition with your dick. It does things dicks don't do. Yeah, but your dick does things that vibrators don't do. And your dick comes attached to a whole bunch of things. You, your personality, your other skills, your ability to eat pussy, all sorts of other things that your dick can do and everything your dick's attached to can do that exist alongside the vibrator. You're not in competition, but that's clearly what happened here. This guy hid your vibrator in his own apartment because he didn't want you using it. He didn't want to compete with it. He didn't want you at home masturbating when you could have been at his place riding his dick. That's probably why he stole your vibrator, hid your vibrator. He gets, I guess, a couple of points for returning it and not just throwing it away when the relationship ended, throwing it away out of bitterness. He gets a couple of points, but he gets way, 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 way more points deleted, subtracted for swiping it from you in the first place. Interesting dynamic there, though, where he admitted to it. He told you he stole it and you thought he was joking. People do that. People will tell truths that seem odd, outrageous sometimes, and pass them off as jokes. And then you will find out later that the person was actually telling you the truth and kind of fucking with your head and playing games and hiding there in plain sight. He hid the theft of your vibrator in plain sight. He told you the truth and made you think he was telling you a joke. You are well rid of this guy. You are better off at home alone with your vibrator. Hi, Dan. This is a bisexual black woman um, currently living on the East Coast, but from the West. And I just wanted to call in and ask a terminology question. Um, so I was hanging out with one of my friends and we were joking about something. And my brother is also gay. And so me and him affectionately call each other, you know, fag. I am also, I count myself as, you know, on the spectrum of sexuality. I'm solidly bisexual. And one of my other friends heard me call him a fag and was immediately just so upset and said, that's ridiculous and I shouldn't be using it. And I compared it to black people using the N-word because I'm black and using the N-word affectionately within that in-group is another thing. And she being a white person immediately was like, no, not even the same thing. So am I okay as a bisexual woman using the word fag, especially with my gay brother who we use it affectionately, or should I just drop it from my vocabulary because I don't necessarily fit the use of fag with gay men? Um, just curious to see what your thought is. Look, it's okay with me if you call your gay brother a fag and if your gay brother calls his bisexual sister a fag and you guys toss that word back and forth uh, uh, affectionately. That sort of in-group use can be, you know, the F word, the F slur, the faggot, can be compared to the way African Americans amongst themselves will affectionately use the N word. And I think rounding up, you qualify to ironically call yourself a fag or let your fag brother call you fag because you're bisexual. You're a part of the queer community. You're a part of that in group and that you've been given permission to call your brother a fag by your fag brother, I think is really 
germane here and that you are queer yourself is germane here. Tell your friend that this faggot with the podcast wants to thank her for speaking up in defense of people, of gay people who might have a problem with someone who's bi using the word fag in conversation with a fag that they have a family bond with and also a queer community bond with and some commonality of experience around queer oppression with blah, 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 blah. It's fine with me if it's fine with you and your brother and it's fine with you and your brother. And if you guys are going to call each other fag, that's the only two people it has to be fine with. But you do, obviously. And I think this incident is evidence of this. You want to be careful who else is in the room, who's overhearing you and how they might misconstrue it or be hurt by your use of the word in the way that you didn't intend to hurt anybody with the use of that word. I have some straight friends who call me faggot. I call them faggot too. It's not a problem. They're wise enough to know that it's not something they could call me affectionately in front of, you know, a room full of people that they didn't know or on the bus or in a crowded restaurant. Remember crowded restaurants? They wouldn't do it in a crowded restaurant. But when it's just us hanging out, you know, taking the piss out of each other. Yeah, it's fine when there aren't people who might be offended in earshot. This person who objected, clearly offended. Don't use the word in reference to your brother or yourself again when they're within earshot. But please, please feel free to keep using the word the way you guys have been using the word. I think that's allowed. And I got to say, I have this hunch that your friend who objected and seemed so theatrically wounded by your use of the word fag in this conversation with your brother, you don't say whether she's straight or not or they're straight or not. My hunch is that they're straight and they're taking offense on behalf of the queer community. I think a queer person, uh, most gay people would understand what you and your brother were doing there and would understand it intuitively and not have a problem with it. Might be another example of toxic allyship of the straight person rushing in to defend the queers or take offense on behalf of the queers, even when they're interacting with queers. So yeah, you didn't say whether this friend was straight or not. My money's on straight. And if they're straight, you can completely ignore their feelings on this subject. They do not have to be taken into account. And when you're queer and you're with a super woke straight person who feels obligated to scold you about a queer thing, you can just ignore them. Fuck toxic allies. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm a cishet male in my late 20s, and I just recently started residency in obstetrics and gynecology. And I have some anxiety about being a guy in the profession. So I wanted to get some advice from your callers uh, to see if there's any advice they have uh, in how I can make my examinations and history taking as uh, comfortable as possible. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Ian Fields, Assistant Professor of Urogynecology and Assistant Program Director for the OBGYN Residency at OHSU Oregon Health and Science University. Hey, Dr. Fields, how are you? Hey, Dan, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me today. Uh, my pleasure. So you are a guy in this field. You are a, a, a male gynecologist. Yes. Uh, I am a male gynecologist. We we are few and far between these days, but we do exist. Now, it used to be that almost all gynecologists were male, and that was a problem. 
Yeah, that, you know, historically, if you really look at the history of OBGYN, that's that's exactly what it had been. You know, if you look at, you know, the history of the specialty was sort of dominated by male physicians, and that a lot of that has changed significantly over time. Not only because, you know, we have more women going into medical school and graduating from medical school, but certainly within the field of OBGYN, you know, the numbers of males are, are dwindling now these days, especially as compared to you know what it used to be. So, are, are men discouraged from going into the field? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that men are necessarily discouraged from going into the field. You know, I think that there's just been sort of a shift over time. Uh, I don't necessarily see that men are necessarily discouraged from going into the field of OBGYN, but it definitely attracts a certain, you know, a certain personality type for sure in terms of men going into the field. Most of the male gynecologists that that I know or I follow seem to be gay men. So is this guy more of an outlier in that he's a straight male gynecologist? You know, that is very interesting that you bring that up because, you know, me as as a cis gay male, like I am, you know, in terms of men going into the field, you've kind of got it right. You know, majority of the men that that tend to find themselves gravitating towards, you know, the specialty of OBGYN tend to be gay males, but there are still, you know, and I have worked with several of them, many cis straight men who are absolutely like the most compassionate, wonderful physicians that I know. And I, you know, in particular have learned a lot from them um, through my residency training, through my fellowship training. Um, they do exist. So, Sometimes I'm you know, when I hear from doctors or hear from people about their doctors, I wonder what's going on in medical school, what's being taught or what's being not covered. Am I right to be concerned that this guy is going into his residency, starting his residency as an OBGYN, and it seems from his call that no one's had a conversation with him about how to make his examinations and history taking as comfortable as possible for the women he's treating. How is it possible that he's going into residency for gynecology, and no one has had this conversation with him yet. You know, you bring up a really interesting point, and I had that question myself um, as soon as I heard that call, because that's certainly not the norm or the standard for medical school education. You know, um, you are certainly taught um, and observed actually taking histories and observed doing the physical exam skills, and that includes a pelvic exam too as part of your training. I mean, I train students here at OHSU and how to do the female pelvic exam with standardized patients. So, you know, they are observed and graded and provided feedback on all of those interactions. So I thought that was a little bit strange because, you know, by virtue of the fact that that you do rotate through OBGYN and you do get those skills, it tends to sort of naturally select for the the students, both male and female, who who tend to do well with this patient population. Okay, so let's assume that you know he's had some education about and some conversations with people about how to make his examinations and history taking as comfortable as possible, but he's asking for perhaps more insight from a more experienced gynecologist that would certainly be you. You would certainly qualify. Would you running the residency program for gynecology yourself at OHSU? What would your advice for him be on those subjects above and beyond what he may have already been taught or told? 
Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, I, I do applaud him for reaching out and trying to, to get some of that advice before he gets started or as he's at the beginning of his career, because, you know, learning those skills will, will help him not only through residency, but moving forward and in, into his career. Um, and so I've given this a lot of thought and I, you know, I kept trying, just wrapping my head around how to say, you know, be a normal human and don't be a creep. But I, I feel like I can put it <laughs> a little bit more um, eloquently than that. I mean, it really is. So you have to come at it from the perspective of like, as, you know, as a, a cis male, like I do not have a vagina, right? Like I will never know what that is like. I will never know what having a uterus is like. I will never know what being pregnant is like. And you have to approach it as something that you can, you cannot you can't know what that is yourself, right? And so I approach every physical exam as being like, oh my gosh, this is probably, you know, the most invasive thing that I could possibly be doing to this patient sitting in front of me. And and you approach it that way and you let the patient know they're in control of the whole thing, right? Like you'd be surprised, Dan, to know how many women that come see me in clinic have a history of abuse or trauma? Um, and these these exams can be really, really triggering for those patients. And so to approach it from sort of that, we, we call it trauma-informed care these days, but to approach it from a perspective where, you know, you are supporting your patient. Your patient is the one that is in control of the exam to, to, to keep you informed of like, okay, if, if there's anything that I'm doing that makes you uncomfortable, please let me know. We can stop this at any point. And just to be able to empower them to use their voices in that setting. I think it's not so much about talking to your patient, but listening to them. And I think if you approach it from that sort of patient-centered perspective, like he will do really, really well. So the perspective would be that the, the physician as opposed to being the expert, is always learning. They may have expertise around anatomy and as a doctor, but what they're gaining or, or gleaning in that interaction with the patient is expertise about that patient and their experience in their body and their comfort and their trauma. Exactly. I, I always say, you know, one of the most astonishing things and one of the most remarkable things about my career as a physician is that I feel incredibly privileged, right? I'm privileged to be a part of my patients' lives. I'm privileged to be a part of their story and I'm privileged to to be able to take care of them. And so if you approach it from that perspective, you know, of learning from your patients, of learning with your patients, of coming up with solutions to their problems together, that's really where like the magic of being a physician comes in. And that's the thing that gives me, you know, the greatest joy from my job. Is there a space online where people in your field share their insights and their wisdom? Is there a gynecology Twitter? Where would he go to have access to other people who are as smart and as experienced and as informed as you are, perhaps in a more informal and collegial way? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, there is this wonderful world of med Twitter out there. 
Um, and there are, are people who are, we have, have dubbed ourselves the guy influencers, basically. <laughs> um, and there's a whole world of them out there, really. I mean, if you hashtag, search for hashtag guy influencer, hashtag OBGYN Twitter, hashtag med Twitter, you can learn a great deal. And so I have actually learned, a, I mean, I learn, <clears throat> I learn things every day when I jump on Twitter. Um, but you'd be surprised because there are not only physicians that, that approach that space, but there are patients who approach that space. And patients who um, are certainly willing to tell their stories to help us physicians grow and learn in our jobs, too. So that's that would be a great place for him to start. Um, and I also think, you know, as you go through residency, you're always paired with somebody who's an, an attending physician, which is somebody who's gone through residency, gone through the board certification process and asking them as you learn from them. You know, I, I didn't show up to residency knowing it all. And I don't still know it all. I, I'm learning every day. I learn from my patients. I learn from my students. I learn from my residents and keeping an open mind um, as far as it goes in that realm, especially when it comes to women's health, um, is just really important. Keep an open mind and always be learning and, and willing to learn from others. Dr. Ian Fields, Assistant Professor of Urogynecology and Assistant Program Director for the OBGYN Residency at OHSU in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Dr. Fields, thank you so much. That was incredibly valuable. Thank you for sharing your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. Hello, Dan. Well, here it is, full circle. Dan, I have been listening to you and reading you for as long as I can remember, and now my child is 17. Recently, my daughter came to me and asked, Hey, Mom, can you talk to me about kinks and what is being kinky and my squick meter just kind of exploded. I am very open-minded. I'm very GGG with my husband. I fully recognize and applaud my child for having the audacity to ask me this question, but I just cannot answer it the way I would talk to my friends. Dan, could you please recommend sites in which my daughter could learn more about kinks and how to express those kinks safely? Uh, you know, I don't want to send her to porn sites where it's not really true to what kinks are and where women are not treated the way they should be and basically unrealistic. I want her to have a full view of it. I'm coming up at a loss and I just don't want to talk to my daughter about kinks. Joining me by phone to help answer this question, Erica Moen and Matthew Nolan, the creators of Ojoy Sex Toy, which we talked about at the top of the show and the success story this week. They're the creators of the Drawn to Sex series of absolutely essential uh, books about, about human sexuality. And they have now brought out a book, Let's Talk About It, The Teen's Guide to Sex Relationships and Being a Human. That is the book that I have been waiting for someone to write for teenagers that I could recommend without any hesitation. Erica and Matt, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. Thank you so much for having us. Gosh, that, that was just yeah, glowing. That was, that was, that was nice. Thank you. <laughs> it is the single best sex education manual guide. I don't know even what to call it for teenagers that I have ever read. And I have read so many of them because I'm always asked for recommendations and I almost never find one that I can recommend without any hesitancy until wow. your book, Let's Talk About It, came along. So 
thank you. I don't know. I don't know where to look. I like, know, like I, my I, heart's beating really I, hard. You like, <laughs> don't deserve all this. Yeah. Oh, thank, thank you so much. Thank you. You need a chapter in there on how to take a compliment. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Um, what inspired you to, to to write this book? I assume that you've been doing these, creating these amazing comics uh, yourselves, and uh, commissioning other comic artists to create these amazing comics about sex, sexuality, gender, uh, sex acts for. How many years now? 15 years now? Uh, um, yeah, like all total, it's probably about 15. But like doing Ojoy Sex Toy specifically is more like eight-ish, yeah, I think. About, about eight. And for almost every one of those years, we had people reaching out going, hey, your, your stuff is really, it, it's really great, but it, it's, it's targeted at, at more of an adult audience. When are you going to make something that's meant for, for a kid, for a teen? Yeah, like I want to give something to my teen. I want to give something to my kid, but that's not that's quite not as just, crass as what you guys are doing. Yeah, or, or, or isn't just, you know, every week a, a sex toy review, mm-hmm. right? Like they yeah. wanted something that was very much more directed for their kid. And for so the we, were like, we wanted to do this forever. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, only just recently had the, had the, had the drive to do it. Mm-hmm. What I loved about the book uh, is often when you see a book like this, it'll talk about maybe it will glance at kink or porn as almost pathologies or something that the reader is assumed to have no interest in. But there are kinky mm-hmm. people out there. Mm-hmm. And what, particularly the chapter on kink, what your book does is acknowledge that the reader themselves may be a 13 or 14 or 15 or 16-year-old person who is struggling with thoughts about kink or thinking about porn and conflicted about porn. And that is a hang-up for a lot of parents. Any sort of sex manual mm-hmm. that acknowledges kink or pornography um, or non-potentially procreative sex acts, a lot of parents have it in their heads that this will instill a desire to do those things. <laughs> right. And what your book does and does so deftly and smartly is acknowledge that there are kids out there that want to do these things who may feel conflicted about these things. And I'm just flabbergasted in a way that it's been brought out by a major publishing house. It's I know, four right? teenagers and you've been allowed to write about sex in this smart and informed way for young people. I honestly, like I've been really surprised that we, that our publisher and our editors were so encouraging. Like I kept thinking like Matt and I will do our mm. thing and then they'll be like, okay guys, you, you got it. You got to ring that in. You got to, we can't actually put that in the book, you know? But they didn't. They they, they would just like give feedback really, on really supportive from, yeah. like, from the onset because we sort of set out and we wrote down these sort of chapter outlines and we were like we wanted to do stuff that felt like had been ignored in traditional sex education and things that you know the harder topics we wanted to sort of crack into all of that and rather than having them push back they were like give us more we want more yeah. of this stuff and it's like yeah okay we're we're down this is awesome so what are some of the topics you cover in the book. Well, we do some of the basic sex education stuff. Yeah, like, like the super, like the stuff you have to cover. It's like here's birth control. Yeah. Um, um, then we kind of build on that, and we sort of talk about um, relationships. Um, yeah, different types of relationships you can have. So it's not just monogamous. It's we we include polyamorous stuff and non-monogamy stuff, and just just as a, a thing being like this is a thing that exists, and it's not for everyone. It's like here's just a laundry list of different types of relationships that exist in the world, and you can try them, you cannot try them. It's all about finding what's right for you. How yeah. did you find your visual voice? You guys have a way of Erica, a way of drawing about sex that is graphic without being explicit that is fully out there shows genitalia and it's somehow not pornographic there's this 
I don't know, this little distance, it's not quite the uncanny valley or something because these look like real human beings and, and real people enjoying themselves, feeling fully uh, in their bodies and enjoying and sharing their bodies. And yet none of your drawings for how explicit they are, even in this book for teenagers, ever feels pornographic. How do you, how do you manage to, 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 to walk that line? Um, yeah, I guess I, I really try to lean into very cute, bouncy lines. So like, rather than trying to like really depict the body smushing together and like, yeah, this is fucking, it's like really kind of uh, cute. Um, and, and when you're looking at two cute cartoons having sex with each other, it's, you can see this is the act, but it's not necessarily like, mm, I'm so aroused. Do you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. I, I also think you, because you take such uh, pride and, and you put a lot of emphasis in making humans look normal, that they're, mm-hmm. they're not, they're not pornographic, you know, which, and there's nothing wrong and, with pornographic. No, no, yeah. no. But they're not like muscle bound and, and perfect <laughs> examples of, 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 you know, uh, of quotation mark pretty, you know, they're, they're regular humans, they're yeah. kids. And, you know, we see them, uh, we, we don't actually see them have sex in the book. We, we would see, no, we, we, show, we show some sex, we show some sex, but like, we'll start a chapter on like after the sex, there, there are two kids getting out of, out of bed. And, you know, then the, the chapter sort of starts. And so we sort of see these sort of more, uh, I, I don't know. Your art really pushes that human aspect. Yeah, I guess I really, really like good. I love drawing people. I really love capturing somebody's personality in the the lines that I use, and mm-hmm. so like that's really where I put my emphasis is trying to draw people with the fewest, most simplest lines I possibly can, and still capture like their 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 energy. Um, so. Yeah, uh, because yeah. because we're going to answer this question from the woman whose daughter mm-hmm. asked her to explain kink. What is kink? Uh, I want to talk about the kink chapter in the mm-hmm. book, uh, which features uh, you, you, a couple processing not the kink kinky act they're about to engage in, but some dirty talk about kinks that happened during presumably pretty vanilla sex. And there's this processing of like what does it mean that that thing the things i threw out there turned me on mm-hmm. and in the moment when they were having sex it was sexy to throw those things out and then you know that i used to call it the post-orgasmic regrets some mm-hmm. they came it's over and now they're a little embarrassed yeah right they revealed or one of them is a little embarrassed mm-hmm. and that is such a smart way to approach this topic like the the, the talking after the fact and you never reveal what the kinks were you just talk mm-hmm. about you know, these sorts of different desires or non-normative desires uh, and this couple processing those desires, what they mean, that everybody has them. Uh, and uh, this is just me humping your leg, which I guess is my take <laughs> on this call. Yeah, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> yeah. To tell you that it was just a genius way to approach it. But I expected nothing short of genius oh. from you guys because I've been reading your stuff for years. And your stuff, even when it's, you know, targeted adults who have more information, uh, their baseline is a little different, um, is always this smart and this informed and this emotionally deft. There's just such a high emotional IQ in your work. Uh, and it's such a thrill that I now get to, without any hesitation, you know, Drawn to Sex, I recommended to some parents I knew whose kids I thought were mature enough or had been exposed to enough pornography that it was a very <laughs> addendum to what they'd already seen. But this I can recommend to the parents I know of 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds without any hesitancy. Oh. <laughs> Let's talk about the caller. Her daughter is 17, wants to, to, your mom to explain kinkiness. It's almost as if this is a, we, we um, 
planted this call because it's just perfect. Because the answer here is get your daughter a copy of Let's Talk About It. That would be my answer for this woman <laughs> and her 17-year-old daughter. What's your answer? How can she talk to her kid about kink? What should she say? Okay. Well, uh, so her thing was that she didn't personally want to have that talk one-on-one and she was looking for other resources. And I found some other resources. Um, so she wants to totally sidestep having that talk herself because she feels too awkward about it. And there's this incredible website called Scarletine. And if you Google working out the kinks and plus Scarletine, it's going to give you this article that is straight up, like it explains all the different glossary of kink terms. It explains the origins of like, why would people be into this and why would people like it and how to incorporate it into your relationship? So for all the parents out there, I, I really would encourage looking up Scarletine plus kink on Google. And then, um, and then we also have uh, an Ojoy sex toy comic that explains kinks. And it's, it's always awkward to talk with your kids about sex. Sure. There's some thing hardwired into most humans, even sex positive humans who've tried to be sex positive about raising their kids. It's your kids don't want to think about you having vanilla sex, much less <laughs> mom and dad or dad and dad or mom and mom being kinky and mom and dad, mom and mom, dad and dad don't want to think about their kid having the most vanilla sex, much less mm-hmm. having kinks. And it, it's sort of this cognitive dissonance. We all know that most people have at least one kink, some people have many, many, many kinks and that they're not chosen. They kind of choose us mm-hmm. uh, and that you can't control for it. You can't protect somebody from becoming kinky if that's basically their destiny erotically. And yet we feel like if we don't acknowledge the existence of kinks to our kids, then we are protecting our kids from perhaps having more complicated sex lives because they're kinky, which will, I think the parents' concern is often limit the number of potential partners for them. And you need to flip that on its head, mom, if you're concerned, in that, you know, having kinks and being able to articulate them is going to bring people into your child's life who might be the most important person in your child's life, who might be the love of your child's life that they wouldn't have met if it wasn't for this common shared interest in whatever crazy thing it is your daughter might be interested in that you might be worried about. And also, if the mom did feel that she could muster her ability to talk about something that squicks her out... Uh, I'd encourage her to say, you know, kinks, it is role play for grownups. It's, um, it, it's, it's playing pretend, but in a sexual context for grownups. And that's what kinks. Cops is. and robbers for grownups with your right. pants off and orgasms. What's wrong with that? Yeah. So right. you don't have to get like super explicit and be like, okay, so first you tie up the balls and then you, <laughs> um, right. Just like get to the, the heart of it. It's like, it's sex games. It's, it's weirdo sex games that make people excited. And just because they're turned on by something in a sexual scenario, it doesn't mean that's like, that's who they truly are. That's what they want to go do in real life to other people who aren't consenting. It's just a lot of times people are get turned on by things that might scare them in real life. And so it's a way of the human brain taking something that's scary and turning it into something that is safe and fun in a very self-contained scenario. Okay, we're going to keep you guys around for a couple more questions, if that's okay. Sure, sure. But before we get to the next one, how did you get into this line of work? This is what <laughs> you two do for a living. You create yeah, right? these comics, you commission other artists, uh, a very diverse group of other artists to create comics on this topic. You've got many, many books out now. This is obviously your life's calling. It can't be what you went to college for. It can't be what you anticipated when you were young adults. How did you get into this line of work and how did it become your careers? 
Yeah. So I've always been doing comics. Uh, it's the way like I process the world. So just as a teen, I was drawing comics about my life and about the absurdities in my life and gross stuff. And, you know, like, oh, shaving my armpits and, oh, I have to go buy a bra and I got my period. And um, so just from a young age, I was just always talking about these kind of taboo-ish subjects in comic form. And then as I became interested in sex, I was talking about it in comics. And, um, and that's actually how Matt and I met. <laughs> I was putting these comics on the internet and, uh, and this guy in England <laughs> saw some of them. <laughs> yeah. And Yours that- is one of those relationships that wouldn't exist, but for the internet. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. But then, um, so after several years of doing lots of autobio, I think mm-hmm. you did like a comic on where you did some sex ed stuff or, girl fuck yeah you did a little, I, a little pamphlet of, of sexy times and yeah I, it was always something that I thought was really really amazing and I thought wow Erica's got a got a calling for this and I know she's got a passion for the subjects I, I tried to encourage you to really lean into that mm-hmm. and then with some more encouragement from a few other professionals they were like hey you should give that a go yeah so, <laughs> for reals you should do that you should do some sex ed proper mm-hmm. and then we st- Came up with Ojoy, with Ojoy Sex Toy. And that's the way to do it. There's something about sex that makes us tense, that makes us all a little bit uncomfortable. And we need to laugh and we need to be amused. Mm -hmm. And the best sex education, I think, happens when you are smiling and when Mm -hmm. you are laughing. Not laughing at someone, but laughing with someone. Mm -hmm. I think sex makes us all feel a little ridiculous and makes us all look a little ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's okay. It's also Mm -hmm. really fun and exciting. And that's what I've always gotten from Oh Joy Sex Toys. You're doing that kind of sex education in the way that I feel that I've always done. Where, you know, I make people laugh, I make people smile. Mm -hmm. I I just do it with words. You guys do it with words and images. And when you get people laughing, it's almost like their their minds open and really good information can can make its way in there and lodge in there Mm -hmm. because they're not just, you know, reading and taking it in, but also experiencing pleasure in that moment. In a way, it's a little bit like sex itself. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And and as far as like laughing at and laughing with, like in Ojoy Sex Toy, Matt and I draw ourselves as the little narrators that are walking the reader through the comic. And we purposely like really play up our dorkitude so that the reader can like laugh at us in a nice way. But it's yeah. like, oh, look at these nerds talking about this thing. And then like that's supposed to kind of disarm them so that then they can absorb the information. And sex is for everyone, not just the... Adonis I sex is also for yeah. the nerds and nerds are often I think a little bit better at sex <laughs> there we go. I'll take it <laughs> hey Dan and the tech savvy at risk use I have a question about how to talk to my very sheltered and maybe even like religiously protected nephews and niece about well the world at large but specifically about the fact that gay people don't just choose to be gay uh, a few years ago I had a really big knock down, drag out, ruin Thanksgiving fight with my nephew who was 16 at the time about the fact that he was trying to tell me that gay people choose to be gay. And I decided, you know what, what better time to blow up the living room than right now? Now I live in Philadelphia, they live in Omaha, Nebraska. My sister, it's her son, my sister's kids, there's five of them, are very religious because of my sister. They all do homeschool and she doesn't really let any adult talk to them uh, without her either being present or if she's not present, she will grill them on what you talked about and she'll re-narrate what she needs them to believe. 
So my problem is, is that I have these five relatives who are growing up in an emotionally abusive situation, very similar to the abuse that myself, my sister, and my brother dealt with. And I just want to be able to reach uh, these kids and let them know that there's a bigger world out there and that all the weird religious things they've been told about sex, but specifically about like being gay and homosexuality, aren't true. My sister, like I said, is very controlling. Like if I were to email them, which I haven't done yet, but if I were to email them, I'm sure she would probably text me and be like, why are you emailing? And in the past, when I've had private conversations with them that were very innocuous, my sister would grill them about what they talked about, and then she would call me and ask me what we talked about. And I had to once explain to her that they have a right to privacy if they don't want to tell her. Um, They don't have to. What's the best way without pushing the kids away? I'm not worried about my sister. But without pushing the kids away that I can let them know that I'm a good person to come to inevitably when they leave that house and get out into the world and discover pop culture because they're not allowed to watch TV or go on the internet. All right. Our our first question that we threw to you was, you know, someone who wanted some other adult to talk to their kid about sex. This is a case where there are kids that the adults in their lives don't want anyone talking to about anything. They're not allowed to talk about sex. They're not allowed to watch television to get on the internet these kids are, I think this is abuse, frankly, to be raised like this. Mm-hmm. But the caller has a way into their lives, has a connection to them. What can he do besides slipping a copy of your book into their stockings <laughs> and hoping mom doesn't notice? I mean, it, first of all, that sounds really rough. Yeah, that everybody. was upsetting to Every, hear. Everybody involved, that, mm-hmm. that's just the worst. Um, it, it's very, very, it, it's really, really tough. I don't know if there's too much you can do when you're not, you know, a direct relative or, or, or like parental oh. figure other than sort of try to have a one-on-one conversation when you can away from the mom saying, hey, listen, when you're older, um, I mean, he pretty much said at the end of yeah. that, of, of when he was talking to you, have that, that one-on-one line with them and say, hey, listen, when you're free, when you're finally out um, of this place, I can be around. I, I can be available mm-hmm. to help. I can be, I can be here to, to give you advice. You know, if you have questions, yeah. you can come to me. That doesn't mm-hmm. it's to the caller. I would say that doesn't mean they will. Yeah. They might not have questions. If I had been raised in a situation like that, I would have had tons of questions because I was gay mm-hmm. and there would have been some conflict there that I needed help resolving. But if these kids are straight and they've swallowed all this religious horseshit and there's no internal conflict about it, that they need the help of a, an, an unrelated adult besides mom and dad to process, there's a chance that they'll never reach out to you. Well, although I want to counter that, though. I mean, yes, what you said, totally true. I also have a lot of my family, extended family, are very fundamentalist religious types. And there was one of my cousins who, my uncle, who is not, he's an agnostic, atheist, whatever, thought this religious stuff was just nuts. Anyway, he had a a connection with my, my boy cousins and he told them like, hey, listen, when you guys get out of the house... I'm here. I, I will show you around. You can crash at my place. Um, and one of them actually took him up on that. And coming from like 
this kid did his mission and like all into the religion and you get married at 17, well, 18. I mean, like you get married as teenagers. Anyway, mm. this cousin went and he did go visit my uncle and he stayed with him for like several months, I think. And like my uncle took him to a strip club and like introduced him to alcohol in a responsible way, not a, not an irresponsible way, but just was like, Hey, look, there's life outside of what you were raised with. And I have since cut off contact with my family, so I don't know how the story ends. Last I heard, he was still part of the religion, but maybe just not as deep in it as he was and capable of having outside connections. It's really frustrating to watch something like this happen. Yeah. Children are not shouldn't be regarded as the property of their parents, mm-hmm. and children shouldn't be held hostage like this. But somebody can be indoctrinated into a faith that they never question. Mm-hmm. And walk away from parents like this, having completely embraced all their bigoted beliefs. And there's nothing that you can do but watch that happen and be sad yeah. for the way they're going to vote one day. But letting them, but to the caller, I would say, letting them know that you're there, mm-hmm. letting them know they can come to you when they're ready to, if they're ever ready to, that there's an adult who's outside of this silo mm-hmm. that they have this connection with and that they can trust. That's it, caller. That's literally all you can do. I think also trying to stay in that world, it, it, it gives a certain amount of exposure to the kids that they might Him not staying in their lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now, that, that relationship with his sister, um, it, it could be, it's so potentially explosive that it, it could end very quickly with him never mm-hmm. being in their lives again. But yeah. him just sort of even existing, even just, just on the edge of it, mm-hmm. being this person who it isn't, you know, straight ultra religious ultra bigoted person is is sort of enough little bit of exposure that it it helps it plants a seed yeah it helps you know if you go if you go rogue and like throw copies of your books at them at christmas (laughs) or you know confront their mother in front of them or say a bunch of things to them that instantly get reported back to 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 mom and dad and get you exiled and out of their lives then the parents can keep pushing the lie that this is what all good people believe and anybody outside of this belief system has no value and is a threat. But if you play along a little bit and bite Mm -hmm. your tongue a little bit and you still get to go to Thanksgiving, you still get Christmas and the kids know you don't believe any of this shit. Right. Mm -hmm. And you don't live the way that their parents live. It plants a seed in their head that maybe you are the person that they can turn to, or there's a world outside the silo that they're being raised in. There's a world outside the hostage situation that is their upbringing. Yeah. And and maybe that, and they that, can escape one day if they're so motivated. And that you're a normal person, that you're not some sort of <laughs> weird, evil creature person that, that the system might be you know, spinning. Yeah. And, and I'd also just really recommend him leaning into not being super confrontational about this stuff. It's like, which is so hard to do, which is so hard to do, but, but to, because if you, if somebody says like, Oh, gay people gross. And you're like, that's bigoted. Like that person's going to shut down. You're now an oppositional force. But if you can, they say, Oh, gay people, that's super gross. God doesn't like that. You'd be like, why do you think that? What, like ask them questions, get them to engage with what they're saying, get them to think critically about it in, in, in a way that's not just attacking them. I completely agree. To say to a 15-year-old who says gay people, ew, gross, which 15-year-olds have literally said to me, have you ever <laughs> met a gay person? Just saying that can be enough to, to, to put in their head that their feelings might change if they actually got yeah. to know somebody who was gay. All right, one more question. 
Hi, Dan. I'm a straight, cis, female New Yorker in Europe, age 48. I'm calling about my 11-year-old son, who has started masturbating. All those long showers and, Mom, knock before you come into my room. Okay, kid. Good for him. He's growing up, and I hope that sex will one day be awesome for him. Getting to know his body will help. But he's also been looking at a lot of porn, and that's what concerns me. We had a long talk about how it was perfectly natural to be curious about sex, but what he saw were adults doing adult things that he would not be doing for a long time. And I got him age-appropriate books like It's Perfectly Normal. I'm a science journalist, so I like facts, and I don't hide much. Also, I grew up in the shadow of Catholicism, and even though I was an avid masturbator by his age, I could admit to anyone that I touched myself until I was 19. I don't want that shame in his head. But he's looking at a lot of porn on Pornhub, according to my laptop browser history. He doesn't know how to cover his tracks by using the incognito window. Most recently, it's been gay anime and fapping videos of boys who look unnervingly mid-teenage, but who are also age-appropriate for him since he's only 11. I want him to have a healthy view of sex, which most porn isn't going to give him. And he's only 11. And I know he's bound to come across inappropriate or even damaging content. So do I bring it up with him? Do I cut him off by blocking the site? Do I not bring it up with him but cut him off anyway? Or some other option? He doesn't want to talk about sex with me or with his dad, which I totally get. I didn't want to at his age either. And he clearly doesn't want us to know what he's up to. Help me thread this needle, Dan. If she's so distressed by everything her son is looking at, uh, I'm just curious why she's looking at everything her son is looking Mm. at. Mm. Look away. He's (laughs) masturbating. You've seen enough to know that he's finding his way to some good information, like the men's health article about masturbation, that he's just not stopping at the most shocking shit, masturbating about it and walking away. So just trust him and and get the fuck away from him and, and leave him the fuck alone and stop looking through his browser history and get him a copy of uh, your book, your new book. For That's teenagers. the answer to everything. <laughs> it is. Well, we, you know, we picked these questions specifically so we could push that. But. There we go. I think, I think the one thing she could maybe have words with him about is like, hey, this is incognito mode and that's going to protect <laughs> you from me. Well, there's also a couple of other factors uh, that she, I, I, I do think she should talk to him about porn. In a general way, not in a general in, way. Uh, this, I've seen the porn no, you're looking no, no. at, let's no, unpack no, no. it. No, no, no. I think it's really important to have talks with children, especially boys mm-hmm. about porn, because there is, I'm sorry, just I'm pro-porn, I'm pro-sex mm-hmm. work. There's a lot of misogyny and anger that gets mixed up into porn because yeah. yeah. it's made for some, some, a lot of it seems to be made for people who are mad at the people in it because mm-hmm. they're not sleeping with them or wouldn't sleep with them. Yeah. And so there's this punishing rage that's sometimes represented in porn. And if you point that out to a boy so they can see it, mm-hmm. they're less likely to identify with it or be sucked into it. Doesn't yeah. mean they won't have kinks. Doesn't mean they won't be into power play necessarily. That kind of cops and robber shit, they very well might be. Mm-hmm. Less likely to, I think, be poisoned by that anger if they can see it it's just like pointing out the racism that's often present in older mm-hmm. movies if mm-hmm. a person can see it they're less likely to be indoctrinated by it if you can see the anger i think in porn or you're made aware that there's anger in porn you're less likely to be poisoned by it it was one of the, the best pieces of sex ed, uh, education i got as a child from my mother which was when she discovered you know caught me masturbating or whatever and she was like okay that's fine everything i don't want to know about it but let, <laughs> let me just tell you about porn and how the people in it are human beings mm-hmm. and it's all performative. And you've got to understand that, you know, they're humans on the other side of that screen. 
And I, it, that always stuck with me. Like, stuck with me for so long. And it was really It's a few great. quick things. It's, it, people think this is a difficult conversation. It's an easy conversation. Beware of anger. Porn is to real life like action movies are to... Mm-hmm. Porn is to real sex what action movies are to real life. And there's a lot that goes on that's edited out. Think about the negotiations. Mm-hmm. Think about what didn't make it into the film. And that it is performative. But think about it. Enjoy it, but think about it. That's really the takeaway for even your uh, uh, your kid who's 11 if your kid is masturbating. Yeah. yeah. I, um, in preparing for this question, I, I had an idea that she could show him um, one of those behind the scenes for an action movie where they show the, the stunt person all rigged up on the wires and like the green screen. And then, you know, then you get to see the final version and she could say, Porn is kind of like this. Like you are not seeing a lot of prep work, a lot of uh, everything that goes into it. He should be told the important. I mean, I know he's eleven; he doesn't have his own credit card yet. But also, it's actually really important to pay for your pornography. Uh, if you just take all this pirated porn, it uh, you don't know what kind you're getting. I mean, at, at eleven, I mean. Everything he's doing is so explorative. Yeah, he doesn't have a credit card. Probably doesn't get it. At 11, do you get much of an allowance? How much of your allowance do you get to put you in the porn jar? Porn. Yeah, and then he's just typing into whatever search bar, you know, big butts. And, uh, and, and, and like, I, I wouldn't put all that weight on okay, him okay, quite okay. yet. Like, like just, just... When he gets his first credit card. Tell, <laughs> now you have down, to pay for your down, porn. Down the road, like, I, less of that. More just sort of like, hey, what you're doing is normal. And as a mom, maybe step back a little bit and not dive into his search history and worry so much about mm-hmm. everything understand he's 11 you know just tell him porn is porn and you know give him some of that basic stuff and then sort of step away and understand that he's doing something very normal and okay and let him do that by himself and also give him a copy of let's talk about it by erica <laughs> moen and matthew nolan which has really all of i think all of the age-appropriate answers an 11, 12, 13-year-old kid needs as they begin to explore sex on their own. And their explorations are going to take them out of that book and past that book and onto the internet where we're all living and exploring uh, and enjoying ourselves these days. And you can't protect your kid from that, but you can educate your kid so they can navigate those spaces smartly. I really think your book will help kids do that. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Um, thank you for coming on. It's always great to catch up with you guys. Yeah. And I, I admire you and I admire the work oh. that you do so much. And the work you do really has helped me with the work that I do. And so thank you. Wow. Well, I mean, I know you don't like compliments, but you are yeah. the huge influence on our work. Like a lot of this exists because of you. Oh, and we'll, we'll, we'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. And congratulations. For Ojoy Sex Toy, go to Ojoy Sex Toy dot com to find let's talk about it which is available at bookstores everywhere just google let's talk about it available at amazon powell's bookshop.org other places it should be in every kid's nightstand by the end of the year erica and matthew thank you so much for coming on thank, thank you. you so much dan <laughs> hi dan early 30s lady from pacific northwest here i recently came across a term that i wanted to ask you about and that was the term fray sexual uh, which I understand means that you have initial attraction that's quite strong and then it kind of fades over time. And I'm kind of having a hard time understanding when it's a sexual identity versus when you're kind of an NRE addict, you know, versus when you need to start putting the work in to keep the spark alive in a relationship. How do you know if that's, you know, something that you need to or can work on or if it's just the way you're built? 
And I know you've said before that STRs are just as valid as LTRs, but, you know, for me, I really want an LTR and I'm still romantically um, connected to my partner. But after, you know, a year or two, things start to fade and I start to lose that. And I wonder, is there a way to keep that going? Or how do you know when you should just give up and it's an identity of yours? I'm just going to be honest. I hadn't heard of phrase sexuality until I listened to your call. And so I got online and I did a little reading and I found some contradictory definitions. Here's one I found phrase sexual, someone who experiences attraction to someone until they actually meet them. Phrase sexuality, a sexual orientation where the individual feels sexual attraction to someone after meeting, although the attraction fades as the emotional bond strengthens. All right, depending on which definition is the correct definition, and I don't think the two online people have settled on just one yet, what you've described, what you call or described phrase sexuality, it just sounds like normal people. The longer you're in a relationship with someone, perhaps the less sexually passionate it becomes, as I've observed many times on this program, at the start of a relationship. They're the sexual adventure you're on. You're the sexual adventure they're on. It just is naturally very exciting because it's risky and dangerous and new. And the longer you're together, you're no longer the adventure they're on. They're no longer the adventure you're on. The sex becomes less intense and passionate because it's less risky. It's less adventurous. The adventure isn't hardwired and built in. And so you have to make, if you want your sex life to stay good and interesting and and you want to still feel that sense of excitement and play and adventure, you, the couple, have to go on adventures together. Once you're no longer the adventure that each of you are on, you have to consciously make an effort to put yourselves out there, to take risks together as a couple. That's the only way that the sex can feel after five years or 10 years as exciting as it felt, as it effortlessly felt at 10 days or 10 minutes, depending on how you met your long-term partner. And this phrase sexuality label just to me, it just makes me honest to God, roll my fucking eyes it's this attempt to create a sexual orientation out of a natural human feeling or dynamic. You know, it's like sapiosexuality. I'm attracted to intelligent people. What's the opposite of a sapiosexual then? If a homosexual is attracted to same-sex partner. A heterosexual is attracted to an opposite-sex partner. A sapiosexual, oh, you're special. You're attracted to intelligence. And everybody else is attracted to fucking morons? What is the implication? Okay, the implication is that there are some people out there that intelligence transcends all other considerations. A gender, age, everything else is irrelevant. If somebody is super smart, you're going to want to fuck them. All right, I guess so. And like sapiosexuality, there's demisexuality, which is not feeling tremendous sexual attraction, but still being sexual. And, and all of these things, sapio, demi, and now fray exist on so we're told the asexuality spectrum and asexuality actually a real thing. For asexual, demi, sapio, yeah, not real things. Just dynamics, interpersonal dynamics, emotional dynamics, and very common ones. It is very common the longer you're with someone for the spark. Not to go out, not if you conscientiously tend it. Not that you can't let it go out if both people are content to be in an intimate companionate loving, even romantic relationship where there isn't any sex or a strong sexual connection, if, if that's not something 
that either party really considers important or wants to prioritize and nobody's unhappy, that can totally work. You don't have to fight to keep the spark alive if the relationship is about other shit that matters to you more than sex does or ever did. That's valid as the online kids say. But I worry about people slapping a label like fray sexual on a common kind of emotional arc or sexual arc in a relationship because it might convince people that, oh, this is the way I am. This is the way I'm wired. Uh, this is my sexual orientation. It's getting thrown around, <laughs> described as a sexual orientation. And so there's nothing I can do about this. I'm helpless in the face of my fray sexual orientation. And so I can never make a long-term committed sexual relationship exclusive or not work. And I think that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy and it could lead people not just to end relationships that they might want to be in or might benefit from remaining in, but to, in a way, valorize the ending of these relationships, to feel special about ending these relationships, to feel like they have no choice. And I worry about people who've convinced themselves that they're very sexual when they're just human beings having sex in relationships exiting relationships they should stay in or abandoning people they made commitments to because what can they do? I'm a phrase sexual. Ugh. All that said, I have talked about and I've met people who go from relationship to relationship. Maybe they're NRE, new relationship energy addicts, or maybe they're just cut out for serial monogamy for a lifetime of successful STRs, short term relationships. And I think if you know that about yourself, if you know that you lose all interest, not just sexually, but also romantically, and that a companionate, intimate, romantic, committed relationship that's sexless isn't for you, that you're always going to need a new partner, like some people lease cars and need a new car every three years, you're always going to need a new partner every whatever it is for you, three months, six months, a year, well then don't make open-ended long-term commitments. Don't fucking marry people if you know that you are incapable of forming those sorts of bonds or tending to them or keeping the spark alive in the relationship sexually if that's important to the person you're with. Know thyself. We are told by the culture that LTRs, long-term relationships, are the gold standard and they're the bar we all must clear and they're what all good people want. And so people endeavor to have LTRs and, and some people, they're cut out for LTRs. They are LTR people. I'm an LTR person myself. Some people can do that. And some people fail at that and think they're bad people because they can't do that. And what's actually going on is that model, the LTR model, fails them. It's not the right model for them. And because the STRs are stigmatized or the inability to sustain a long-term, year after year after year, commitment is stigmatized. People who would be better off self-actualizing in a self-aware way, in successful STRs, having a series of short, passionate, intimate relationships coming into someone's life and exiting that person's life without making a lot of promises you can't keep, without letting them make assumptions that are reasonable, uh, perhaps in most cases, because most people do want LTRs, you can be a healthy, happy, functional adult and I guess a very sexual, if you want to call it that, or just somebody who's cut out for STRs and appreciates NRE and isn't someone who can sustain a long-term romantic committed sexual connection with another human being. And there's no problem with that. It's nothing to be ashamed of. The shame comes in when someone lies about looking for an LTR or wanting an LTR. 
knowing that they're incapable of it, that they can't do it. And sometimes you have to look back over your romantic history to realize that you can't do it or you're incapable of it. That's where the shame comes in. If you know yourself and you know that six months, a year, two years is your relationship max, then don't make LTR promises and you'll have nothing to be ashamed of. And I suppose you can call yourself a phrase sexual if you want because there's nothing I can do about it because I'm not the sexual orientation label police. All right, before we get to response calls, let's read your tweets. Karma Waltonen tweets. Last night I had a dream in which I was getting back together with an ex. And then I was at a Savage Lovecast live event and at Fake Dan Savage brought me up on the stage to tell me it was a bad idea. He was right. It would have been. Thank you, Dream Dan. You're welcome, Karma, and I'm guessing you're a Magnum subscriber. Me appearing in your dreams to give emergency dream sex advice is just one of the many perks enjoyed by Magnum Savage Lovecast subscribers. Dotparker.com tweets regarding the sweetly self-identified pedant on last week's Savage Lovecast. You may be delighted to know, Dan, that the Finnish for pedant translates as comma fucker. I am delighted to know that. Thank you. And crazy coincidence. That was the nickname I gave my copy editor a long time ago. And finally, Atticus or Bust tweets, congrats, Dan, you finally arrived. You are featured in the Corvid research fact. That's Corvid with an R in there, the crows and ravens family of birds, not COVID, the masks and mass death variety of pandemics. Anyway, Atticus goes on to quote from the Corvid research fact, FAQ, are crows monogamous? To answer this question, we will take a page from the Savage Lovecast, Dan Savage, and describe them as monogamish. More scientifically, we describe them as being socially monogamous, but genetically promiscuous. They generally stay with one partner for life, but behavioral observations and a genetic analysis in New York populations indicated that attempted extra pair copulations are not uncommon. Thank you, Atticus, and that is indeed a high honor. I have arrived and I'm going to do my best to work. Attempted extra pair copulations are not uncommon into an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast. Knowing what I know about humans and the kinds of calls I get, I don't imagine it's going to be that difficult. All right. If you want me to include your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And as ever, we appreciate everyone who posts to Twitter or Instagram or other social media accounts about the Lovecast helps get the word out about the show. All right. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan, you had a caller on your show that was asking about the safety of, of making a a little video with his current fuck buddy, and he wanted some tips on how to do this more safely, and you totally ignored that part, but I have a couple of them. For one thing, make sure there is nothing in the video that could identify it as you by the room, by identifying marks or scars or tattoos or piercings. You may want to go to a motel room. You may want to put some heavy-duty makeup on over a very distinctive tattoo if you have one. You may want to alter your hairstyle or put a wig on or do something that disguises you except for your face. And you may not want to, you may want to try as hard as possible to not have your face be visible. If after all that, someone still recognizes you, I would say, say it's a deep fake. It's happening all the time. More and more people are having images of quote themselves, unquote, on the internet that aren't really themselves. And you can always use that as an excuse. Have fun. Hey, Dan. I'm calling for the woman who is with the guy who cheated on her, who is now basically flagellating himself. You have to leave this guy. I know people like this. I'm not going to say he's an absolute narcissist, but 
whatever the upbringing, whatever took place, there are people who are simply incapable of taking responsibility for themselves. So there are people who will give you and they will say that they are giving and giving and giving. The problem is they don't give you what you need. They give you what they want to give. And what he is doing is finding a way of making himself the good guy, but also making him the victim. This is not good. Trust me. It will get worse. It will continue on. There will be other things that he will do like this. And your needs will become second, third, fourth. Get out of there. Good luck. He'll be fine. It's not your responsibility. Hey, Dan. Just calling in response to the last caller about how women feel about dicks that are circumcised versus not. I am a bisexual Jewish woman, so I was raised, of course, my whole life with very specific assumptions and biases about circumcision. And then it wasn't until a couple years ago that I ever saw or had sex with a dick for the first time that was not circumcised. And I agree with the last caller. It was way better. Maybe just because he had so much more sensitivity and, you know, wanted stimulation that was more delicate and more nuanced, which I found actually much more enjoyable for me as well. And yeah, since then I have completely changed my opinion and come around about circumcision. I I am a Jewish person who is against it. I think it's barbaric and I think it's not right that it's done to an infant when they don't have any say or choice in the matter. And uh, yeah, it made the experience more nuanced and more subtle and I enjoyed that level of connection more. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. And a teaser about next week's show. We are pissing our panties here with excitement because our very special guest is going to be the one and only comedian, actor, producer, and one of the co-creators of Big Mouth, Nick Kroll. We're going to play a portion of that interview on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast and the whole thing, our whole extended conversation with Nick Kroll and Nick Kroll sex advice for my callers. That's going to come out on the Magnum. So if you've been considering giving the Magnum Savage Lovecast a try, now is the time to subscribe. You, you can try it out for one month for just five bucks and get the whole extended conversation with Nick Kroll and also access to every single Magnum Savage Lovecast we have ever made. To subscribe to the Magnum or gift the Magnum to someone you know who loves the Lovecast, go to www.savagelovecast.com. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Dr. Ian Fields on Twitter at E-E-Y-A-N Miller. Follow Erica Moen at Erica Moen and follow Matthew Nolan at Plus 10 Strength. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week on installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.